Thank you. Do keep your Bibles open and let's pray together as we begin. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? So our Father in heaven, we pray on this Father's Day that we might look to you as the good Father who gives his children what they need. We ask that you would speak to us and nourish us, excite us, inspire us, give us a fresh glimpse and a vision of who you are, a fresh insight into the glory of the cross as we look at 1 Kings 20 this morning. Please soften our hard hearts. Please open our deaf ears that we might see the glory of Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Have you, um, have you ever come across the concept or the idea which is sometimes called defeater beliefs? They've come quite popular of late. They're the idea that many, many people, many secular-minded folk, many people that we rub shoulders with day by day perhaps, won't even give the Christian faith a first look because they have an intellectual hurdle which they need to get over. They need to have engaged. It's something that, that defeats everything else, that they vary depending slightly on where you are in the world. But here are, here are a few examples that people say. So, I won't consider the gospel because, one, the God of the, tes- the Old Testament is a moral monster. I won't consider the gospel because, two, the problem of pain and hell is incompatible with the worship of a worthy God. Or three, miracles are, are impossible or irrational. Or four, there is no one true religion. Five, the Bible is not reliable. Six, the Bible's view on sexuality is, is outdated and it's just plain wrong. And so because of these hurdles, I'm not prepared to give the gospel a second thought. How do you answer those, friends? Maybe that's you here this morning. Maybe there are questions and concerns that you have. Maybe the, you can think of friends in your life who say that kind of stuff. They're good questions. I'm aware as we come to our passage in 1 Kings 20 for this morning... I'm aware, firstly, that it seems a long way removed from us and our situation, us and our context. I want to say I think it's a very contemporary passage, and we hopefully we'll see by the end how relevant it is for us. But also the fact that there is talk of war and death, thousands being killed. And how can that God be the God of Jesus? Perhaps for some of us, questions are bobbing around. It is, is the God of the Old Testament a moral monster? Do I like the God of the Bible? 
It's my hope this morning that, I want to say at the outset, I don't want to try and convince you necessarily of an answer, but maybe just to make you think. Perhaps just to start the ball rolling. Fundamentally, it comes down to the the issue of how, if there is a God, how can we know him? How do we know what he's like? Because in a world of of choice and personalization, many choose to believe what they want to believe about God. There's a sort of hodgepodge recipe of ideas and ideologies and mix and match of this and that and feel-good pop counseling. I was in Costa this week, which might surprise some of you. Maybe others not. I was in Costa this week, and someone in front of me had, had a caramel mocha. I thought, that sounds amazing. I've never thought of adding caramel to a mocha before. I, I love the idea. The person behind me, this is genuine, had, had an extra hot Americano. And often, I don't drink my coffee that quick because I get distracted or I'm busy. And an extra hot Americano, that's a fantastic thing. Problem solved. We, we love to personalise. We love something specific and special that suits us and who we are, the way that we've been wired at our lives. And easily we can bring that into our understanding of who God is. But you see the problem, if we're just constructing a God whom we like, who makes us feel good, who fulfills our needs, who scratches our itches and plays to our appetites, then that's not the real God. Interestingly, we've seen in the context of this little section in 1 and 2 Kings that the god Baal they were worshipping, the so-called god Baal, was a god who brought fertility and rain and crops and harvest and whom you worship, they think, with prostitutes and sex. It sounds very appetite-driven. Sounds like the kind of god some people would like to believe in. But if we're just making, if we're just constructing a God who who makes us feel good and fulfills our needs and scratches our itches and plays to our appetites, that's not the real God. We're not at liberty to, to construct the kind of God we want rather than the kind of God he is. I've I've said it before, it's a slightly silly example. But let me tell you about my wife. She's brilliant, she's lovely. Let me tell you about how beautiful she is. She has gorgeous eyes, she has beautiful hair, gorgeous green eyes, beautiful brown curly hair. But you see, that's the thing, she doesn't look like that. She has blue eyes and she has blonde hair. I can't just make up what she looks like, because I know what she's like. I know who she is, and there are consequences for getting her wrong. Well, so it is with God, friends. We, the Costa Coffee personal God option is very attractive for some, but if God has revealed himself and told us what he is like, then we can't just make him up. There'll be bits, perhaps, that we're happy with, and there'll be bits that we struggle with. He's not simply a God of perfect love. He's a God of perfect justice. And as we work our way through this chapter in Kings, I think we get to see what God is like. Before we just jump in, a couple of things to note. 
We've said all along that the writer focuses in on these, these chapters, these stories in 1 and 2 Kings, in part because he is wanting us to see the, the depths and the depravity of God's people, of, particularly of their king Ahab. Do you remember in week 1, Ahab introduced to us, chapter 16, verse 30, Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. Two verses later, he He did more to arouse the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, than did all the kings of Israel before him. King Ahab has not been airbrushed and photoshopped. And it's particularly true as we round the final bend for him at the end of 1 Kings. Really, this is a section about him. This shows us how bad he gets. So here in chapter 20, he he doesn't listen to or obey God. Next week, 21, he oppresses and stitches up a household from within his kingdom Chapter 22, he ignores the word of the Lord through one of the prophets. So we see in dreadful clarity the depths of Ahab, the bottom of the tick, if you like. Second thing to say, and it may have occurred to you as Liz was reading it, that there is no Elijah in the chapter the word of the Lord this time comes through an unnamed prophet. So maybe we say, well, why have we bothered to focus on, on this bit? Because it says at the bottom, this is a story of Elijah. What, why include it? Well, of course, it's not really a series about Elijah. It's a series about the Lord and what he is like. But do you remember this Lord, the one from last time on Mount Sinai, on Horeb? He is the Lord who will preserve 7,000 for himself. This prophet, I take it as one of them. Is the Lord who works through little things. This prophet doesn't even have a name. Prophet A doesn't have a name. Neither do B, C and D as we'll see at the end of the passage. Little things that are not Elijah. So into chapter 20. And I think we'll see three things. If you're the kind of note taker and you want to know where it's going. Approximately the first third is the God of grace. Second third, the God of power. And the final third, the God of justice. Firstly, the God of grace. Truth be told, as the chapter begins, the situation does not look good. We get the first of two threats from the king of Aram, Ben-Hadad. They're the Syrians, they're to the north of Samaria. And he is gathered there with, with 32 kings, it tells us. Probably they were tribal chiefs and they have in their diversity, unified together against Ahab and against God's people. It was a massive army. And there they are. They they, they impose their numbers advantage against Ahab. And they demand, verse 3, Your silver and gold are mine, and the best of your wives and children are mine. And Ahab, without a second thought, instantly rolls over and submits. Verse 4, King of Israel answered, just as you say, my Lord, the king, I and all I have are yours. But it turns out that, turns out that Ben-Habab wants more than just submission. He wants humiliation. And so verse 5, this is what Ben-Hadad says, I sent to demand your silver and gold, your wives and your children, but... But about this time tomorrow, I'm going to send my officials to search your palace, the houses of your officials. They will seize everything you value, and they will carry it away, which is too much for Ahab. So step too far, he gathers his advisors together, 
And to their credit, they say no. They say, we'll roll over and submit to you, but you will not humiliate and destroy and decimate us. And so the back and forth continues. Verse 10, then Ben-Hadad sent another message to Ahab, may the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if enough dust remains in Samaria to give each of my men a handful, which is I'm going to pulverize you. I'm going to destroy you. I'm going to grind you into the ground. You are history. There will be nothing left. Which is serious talking. Because, as we said before, Ahab was a great military leader. But this is David and Goliath on the national level. The Syrian army, the Aramean army, were massive. It would be a walk in the park for them to destroy the people of God. It looks hopeless. It looks like game over. Maybe Ahab is finally getting his comeuppance. He, he has been leading the people of God away from the God of life. And so maybe this is it. Maybe it's game over. But then, grace. It's completely undeserved. It's unexpected. It's extraordinary. From out of nowhere to hard hearts to deaf ears, God speaks. Verse 13. Meanwhile, a prophet came to Ahab, king of Israel, and announced, this is what the Lord says. Do you see this vast army? I will give it into your hand today, and then you will know that I am the Lord. Listen to me, do as I say, victory will be yours and you will know why. And he listens and he obeys and they win and it's miraculous. Verse 20, the Arameans fled with the Israelites in pursuit, but Ben-Hadad, king of Aram, escaped on horseback with some of his horsemen. The king of Israel advanced and overpowered the horses and chariots and inflicted heavy losses on the Arameans. But there's a sequel. Verse 22, it's not game over. The prophet came to the king of Israel and said, strengthen your position and see what must be done because next spring the king of Aram will attack you again. It's striking, this whole scenario, this whole story, because, and we've seen it in previous weeks, but God is a God of initiative. It very much goes against what we've seen of Baal so far, week on week. The the so-called God whom the people have been duped and are running after, Baal is all about doing stuff. To make him work. Do you remember at Mount Carmel? If you press these proverbial buttons, if you do this incantation, if you fervently dance around the place, if you plead with your God, if you cut yourself even, then, then nothing. Nothing happens. Of course, the problem with that kind of God is basically we end up in charge. He's at our beck and call. We're in the driving seat. We're at the center. He's just there to to dish out the goodies if we press the right buttons in the right order. And that that seems to be the the essence of man-centered religion. It's all around us. It's the culture in which we swim. And it's easy to slide into it ourselves, isn't it? So, so, So maybe things aren't going our way and we wonder, well, what have I done wrong? Where has God gone? If things are going our way, then it's because we've done stuff right, we think. It's performance-based. But isn't it striking in this passage that 
Our God takes the initiative to speak, to pursue and to woo a wayward people who have turned their backs on him. He pours out his blessing despite, despite hard hearts. Despite chapter after chapter after chapter of warning for Ahab, the Lord keeps seeking him. Ours is a God who is patient and gracious, who, while we were still sinners, still enemies, he died for us. Isn't he beautiful? It's an extraordinary for slow learning, sinful people like us with goldfish like memories. He is patient and gracious and keeps pursuing us. He's kind. And his grace is poured out again for Ahab as evidence of who God is. Will Ahab listen this time? Because he's not taken note so far. The, the you in verse 13, have a look, the you is singular. Then you, Ahab, will know that I am the Lord. Ahab, will you respond to my grace? How? Will you respond to my grace? The battle is not a party trick. The battle is, is revelatory. They're meant to see that God is real. It's meant to change things. I take it there are parallels for us as well as God pours out his grace to us. We're not to be like Ahab, continually forgetting the giver of grace continually chasing after other gods rather than the God of life. We're not to divorce the grace from the source of grace. The one who pours it out, it's very easy to do that. And yet Yahweh says to Ahab, I have done this so that you will know who I am. I'm kind and I'm patient. So he sees the God of grace. In the next little section, we see he is the God of power. Verse 23 through to 30. I recognize this is probably an unfamiliar passage for us. And so what happens next? How does the narrative continue? Well, the army of Aram regroup, they gather themselves, they lick their wounds, and they decide, well, here is the reason we lost the battle. Verse 23. We lost the battle because their gods are gods of the hills. That is why they were too strong for us. But if we fight them on the plains, surely we will be stronger than they. Do this. Remove all the kings from their commands and replace them with other officers. You must also raise an army like the one you lost, horse for horse, chariot for chariot, so we can fight Israel on the plains. Then surely we will be stronger than they. He agreed with them and acted accordingly. So do you see that there are issues of theology kind of intermingled with military strategy. They, they think, well, the God of the Israelites, he's a God of the mountains. Maybe they had heard of Carmel, chapter 18. Maybe they had heard of Horeb last week, chapter 19. But also, verse 24, that they've changed the 32 kings for military officers. I don't know, maybe kings aren't great at taking orders. Maybe it will give a better strategy, a better chain of command. But again, it looks hopeless. Verse 27, it is laughable. The, the Syrian army, they cover the hills. The Arameans cover 
the hills. The Israelites, they look like farm animals, two little flocks of goats. But again, God provides word of success from his prophet. The odds are stacked against them, verse 28. Again, the man of God came up and told the king of Israel, this is what the Lord says, because the Arameans think the Lord is a God of the hills and not of the God of the valleys, I will deliver this vast army into your hands and you will know that I am the Lord. Why will he give them victory? So that you, plural, will know that I am the Lord. Implication this time, how are the people going to respond? Will they turn back to the giver of grace or will they harden their hearts again? Of course, the Aramaeans, Syrians, had faulty theology. He's more than a God of the hills. He's a God of the world. He is the one true God who made everything, who is in charge. And we limit him and we, we compartmentalize him at our peril. We've, we've seen it in weeks gone by. That there was a tendency then to think that, that God's had a kind of geographical limitation in some way different deities were only active in different areas or perhaps different elements of life and so the big surprise as we've gone through Elijah is that in Zarephath which was Jezebel Baal territory the Lord was still powerful with the widow not Baal or or on Carmel which was the mountain of Baal the Lord was still powerful he's in charge it's not Baal And of course, we're not likely to do that, are we? We know that he's a God of the whole world. and We know that in a sense because, well, genuinely, we can read the news reports that his kingdom is growing in extraordinary ways in South America, in Africa, in Asia. It's it's fantastic news. It's flourishing. I've told recently that South Korea is globally the biggest sender of missionaries. God is not limited geographically, but... But I wonder if we do still in our minds limit him and squash him to be manageable. We box him up. We have a short-sighted view of his power. So so some people you speak to, and they say, well, I don't think God could use someone like me. Someone with my my backgrounds, my skeletons, my experiences, my damage, my failures, my insecurities. And in a way, we compartmentalize him. We... We think he's just the God of the hills, but he's powerful. He's the God of the valley. He can work in all situations and in and through all kinds of people, even someone like, like you, like me. Or we do it in our diary and we, we have it in our week. And we think that there are these sort of predetermined bits where God. Well, maybe he's able to work there, church, I'd hope, home group, youth group, perhaps when you meet with certain people or people you've been praying for. But then there are times when oh, God's kind of he's out of his reach, really. Maybe in your difficult workplace or your stressful family or, or certain times of the week that, if you're honest, are almost off limits to God. Because, well, he's a God of the hills. But no, he's not. He's all powerful. He's a God of the valleys. There are no bits that are off limits. Whatever your diary looks like for this next week or this next month or this next year, God is interested and he is able 
He's the God of the world. It's one of the things I've enjoyed um, as we've been watching the, the DVD in home groups. I know some of you are in home groups. Thinking that God uses ordinary stuff to bring about his purposes, to grow his kingdom. Ordinary people in ordinary places at ordinary times doing ordinary things. The DVD says it, it's all frontline. He's at work. Mountain or valley, it doesn't matter. He's the God of the world. He is always powerful. And Ben Haddad learns that through experience in a distressing and a difficult way. Despite numbers, despite outward appearances, once again, God preserves and protects his wayward people and grants Ahab victory. But as we draw to the end of the chapter, in a sense for Ahab, the news gets worse. Because there we see the final part of God's character in this passage here. We see he's a God of justice. Now what's going on? Well, the chapter ends with the the Aramean king, Ben-Hadad, eating humble pie and sending messengers to Ahab, trying to sound out whether Ahab will spare his life. Verse 32, they wear sackcloth around their waists and ropes around their heads. They went to the king of Israel and said, your servant, Ben-Hadad says, please let me live. The king answered, is he still alive? He's my brother. The men took this as a good sign and were quick to pick up his word. Yes, your brother Ben-Hadad, they say. Go and get him, the king says. When Ben-Hadad came out, Ahab brought him into the chariots. I will return the cities my father took from your father, Ben-Hadad offered. You may set up your own market areas in Damascus, as my father did in Samaria. And Ahab said, well, on the basis of a treaty, I will set you free. So he made a treaty with him, and he let him go. Which would be a great place to finish. It sounds pretty neat. The loose ends are tied up. Everything seems to be um, resolved. The, The threat from the north has been removed for now. There's some land even that's been returned from previous conquests, but... But that's not it. In a very real sense, this bit here is what the chapter is all about. You can even argue this is not just the climax of the chapter. The rest was just introduction. The rest was just the preamble for this lesson. It's a slightly weird episode. So what happens is there's another prophet appears. We're going to call him Prophet B because we've already had Prophet A. So Prophet B appears And he gets a first reluctant prophet to strike him. That's prophet C. We've got prophet C, prophet B asking prophet C to strike him. Prophet C says no. And he suffers the consequences of that from a lion. I think the point there is God's word must be obeyed. Next on the scene, we have prophet B talking to prophet D, a replacement for C. And prophet D does indeed strike prophet B. And battered and bruised, prophet B goes to Ben-Hadad and tells him a story. And it's a story about a prisoner of war. There's a prisoner of war who was to be guarded, but he escaped. And because the prisoner of war escaped, so as it's agreed, the one who was doing the guarding is to give up his life. And the king says, yep, 
it's a life for a life. If that's what you've agreed, then you must die. But as he says that, verse 40, he's condemned himself. That is your sentence. You've pronounced it yourself. But you see, he is the guard who's let the prisoner of war escape. Ahab is the guard. And Ben-Hadad has escaped. He should have destroyed him. So verse 41, then the prophet quickly removed the headband from his eyes and the king of Israel recognized him as one of the prophets. He said to the king, this is what the Lord says. You, sh- you have set free a man I had determined should die. Therefore, it is your life for his life, your people for his people. Sullen and angry, the king of Israel went to his palace in Samaria. Do you see, rather than removing the cancer, he's let him go. And maybe in in human terms, it looked wise. It looked politically astute. It meant the land was growing. But it means the destruction designed for Ben-Hadad will instead fall upon Ahab and upon his people. And we say, that sounds pretty harsh. Doesn't it? To be honest, I quite like the the Costa Coffee personalizing God option when we come against things like this. I'm not sure that my view of God has quite that breadth where he has enemies, where there are foreign kings that must be removed and done away with. I don't like to think of God like that. One writer says this, Some Christian readers may wonder, is this our God in verses 31 to 43? The God who wants an Aramean king executed and who announces judgment on Ahab for not doing so? Is it not embarrassing to claim this God? Should we not rather commend Ahab for his enlightened magnanimity and admirable restraint? We may be tempted to think Ahab is more like Jesus than Yahweh is. But then he continues, if we show that, we have never really heard Jesus. It may be that you need a strong dose of 1 Kings 20. You need to see that Yahweh holds the right to judge. And if you will not have this God, you will not have the God of the Bible. So friends, do you see, because ours is a God of perfect love, And a God of perfect justice, because he is so good, he must be a God who deals with sin. He must be a God who punishes wrongdoing. He's a God who wants to put the world to right, to restore relationships, to to deal with rebellion. Because if he doesn't, then he's not really a God of justice. He's not who he says he is. And here's the thing. Where do we see... Where do we see in the most powerful, extraordinary, cosmos-changing way who our God is? Where do we see that he is a God of grace, a God who's powerful, a God of justice? Well, if 1 Kings 20 stretches us and stretches our understanding of who the God of the Bible is, in, in reality, surely the cross 
Surely the cross will stretch us even further. Because on the cross, God does not demand our blood for our sin and our wrongdoing. On the cross, he offers his own. That is the answer. God had to suffer in order to deal with his right, just, good hatred of sin. God had to suffer in order to forgive a people like us. On the cross, he's not demanding our blood. He's giving his own blood. And so as we come to celebrate the Lord's Supper in a moment, as we eat bread and as we drink wine together, here we have the solid evidence that God is a God of grace. A God who is powerful. A God who is just. As we eat and drink together, well, remember and return to the real and the raw God of the Bible. Not the God that we we construct and we mix and we match and we personalize. That we make in our image even. But the God who has revealed himself to us. And as we eat and we drink together, see how much he loves you. Let's pray. Our loving Father, we pray that you would help us to increasingly see you and know you as the God who has revealed himself to us in the Lord Jesus and in his word about him. Thank you for your extraordinary love for us at the cross. Thank you that you are a God who is so loving and yet so good. Thank you that you don't demand our blood. But you pour out your blood for your people. Thank you that one day all sin and suffering and injustice and rebellion will finally be dealt with. But until that day, we thank you for your daily provision and grace for us. Thank you that you are gracious and powerful and just. In your son's name we pray. Amen.